I would love to have you take your Bibles and to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts 15, that will be our main text today, though we will journey just a bit elsewhere. And the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know you will find helpful as well. As we head toward the text this morning, there are a couple of things I'd like to just add and remind. I uh, last Sunday took a couple minutes of your time to give an update on uh, this coming year's ministry that we have up at Central Bible Church and down at Grace Community Church. And as well, I mentioned to you that beginning October 1st, we will also be providing preaching support at Temple Baptist Church. A lot of churches in town uh, have things going on and struggles with and, and areas of need. And so we are grateful to be in a position to, to be of help. So October 1st, um, uh, it's a different situation at Temple Baptist as compared to Central and Grace, different levels of, of need and things are asking for it. But October 1st, we are providing preaching help there. I'll be the first one there. Uh, today, of course, Pastor Craig is, is uh, up at Central. Pastor Matt is down at Grace. So we'll add another layer to that starting October 1st. It'll be interesting, but very grateful that, that we can be in a position to help with the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, so wanted to, to say that again from last week. Also wanted you to know about another partnership you may find this uh, recorded someplace or hear it announced in some other setting and say, what's that about? So you heard it here first. Uh, some months ago, um, we were approached by some folks involved with Sound Christian Academy, formerly known as Tacoma Baptist Schools. We have a lot of folks involved in uh, schools of all sorts, public school, private school, homeschool, co-ops, and so on in town. But SCA reached out to us to ask for some help in some, some areas, and we've been talking about that kind of off, off the record for, for months, uh, exploring what all of that is and what was being asked. And this is not a legal relationship or a financial relationship, but rather one of resource and encouragement and help. And so we have agreed to that along with two other churches. They asked three churches to kind of be a help to them. Uh, the Evangelical Reformed Church over uh, in Lakewood and Puget Sound Foursquare and Sunset Bible Church. Now, looking to find a church that would represent the three major theological groups that they have in their student body. That was really the thinking behind that. And so we represent one of those groups. And as a church, we have now provided several people to serve on their board, as the other churches will as well. And uh, those of us who are pastors uh, will provide some encouragement and help along the way too. So, if you see that in writing someplace, instead of saying, huh, who knew? Uh, I didn't. Well, now you do. So, that um, will come in, in, in other ways. And then I wanted to make reference as well. Uh, over the last several summers, we've had Nate Ferris, who was just, just here, uh, as, a, as an intern for the summer. And uh, then he, he completed his Master of Divinity degree a year ago, year and something, uh, down at Corbin, and so he was uh, a pastoral intern over this last year, uh, full-time this summer. Well, as it turns out, we're going to keep him full-time instead of going back to, to... I guess that's good. Wow. Yeah. Well, so we, we um, consider that really significant, of course, uh, for him and moving him from one role to another, but also from part-time to full-time, which he does a lot with our, our youth group and Area 57 and so on, but will also continue to need his help in the preaching ministry that God continues to give us. So really, really good. 
Um, good, Nate, glad for that. Um, Acts 15, where we're going today, is the second part of two. Uh, as we begin fall together, last week we used the heading, The Church in the World, and we talked about remembering the mission. And today, uh, embracing the conflict. Every fall, as we begin our, our fall ministry together, I like to remind us as a church of, of some elements about who we are and what it is we're to be, the message, the gospel, just, just some reminders of core things. And today I want to think with you uh, about this, this part of the history of the church recorded in the book of Acts where there's conflict. And I want to look at that with us because as the gospel goes into the world, there is conflict. So it comes from different places and, and, and it looks different in, in various settings. But in Acts 15, to the surprise of some, there's conflict recorded in the Bible. I mentioned here under the first part of your sermon notes, some people find that troubling. And I'm suggesting we ought not to find that so troubling or shocking because for a variety of things, as the gospel heads into the world, there is conflict. Light and dark do conflict. And then there are other kinds of conflict that we'll talk about in a bit that are not necessarily about good and evil, but there's difference of opinion and so on. So I want to suggest to you it's possible for a unity and conflict to, to coexist. You can have unity on big picture things, core gospel values, commitment to the scriptures, and at times... Areas of conflict or disagreement on what I'm going to call peripheral matters. And we want to talk about the differences, I suppose, between uh, core areas and uh, others. So that's part of where we want to go today. And I want us to just look at it and talk about it together. Book of Acts chapter 15. I want to pray that God would help us with this. And we'll roll up our sleeves. We have a bit to cover. And um, I'll ask you to bring all heart and mind and soul to our study of God's word. But would you pray with me, please, as we do this? Father, thank you so much. Uh, you are so good to us. And you, you give us the scriptures to be our guide, uh, the foundation of the church, foundation of a local church, foundation of the big C church around the world. You've told us what you're like and what things you love and what things you don't. And I pray that you would help us as we, we seek to live wisely the things that you give to us and tell us about. Please help us with this. And today, as we come to this portion of Scripture, help us to hear wisely, as Jesus said, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. We want to be that. And then having heard to love the truth, and then having heard it and loved it, to submit ourselves to it. So, so guide us now in this moment in God's word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So a few things uh, in the category of what we call context. Okay, so the book of Acts uh, is, is telling the story of the early church. Last week, we saw that the book of Luke and Acts, those two, were written by the same person, Dr. Luke, first century physician, who, who set out to do intelligent work. That is, we read the first paragraph of Luke's gospel where he, he, he says, I am wanting to write, I've investigated carefully, I'm wanting to set in order this story of Jesus. He's writing to a friend and he says, I've investigated this carefully and I'm wanting to lay it out in order so that you'd know what's true and what isn't. 
So he sets out to explain it that way. Book of Acts begins with a similar introduction where he says, I want to tell you not only about the things Jesus began to do, but now the things he's continuing to do. So the life of Jesus and then the story of the early church as the gospel begins to, let's just say, go public and go to the nations. So Luke, of course, that gospel is telling the story of Jesus. Book of Acts tells the story of the early church. Now, um, there are a whole number of things taking place in here. I'm in that category here on your sheet called today's text. Um, I'm going to go even back further than Acts 13 to 15, though I'll comment on that in a moment. As, as the gospel heads toward the world, you find in Acts chapter 2, God does a whole new thing. Okay, prophesied, Old Testament talks about it, but you find at that moment after, uh, after a 10-day prayer meeting, there was a group of 120 who'd been praying as Jesus told them to, and then Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit came in a whole new way. And if you read the text, it is so blatantly obvious that, that what God was doing in sending the Holy Spirit, he enabled that group of 120 to speak languages they had never studied, that they were actual languages is very evident in the text. Uh, you can debate other texts, but not that one. Uh, they spoke languages they'd never studied for the purpose of communicating the gospel to people who spoke those languages and were present. Uh, that's really what happened in Acts chapter 2. And the gospel began to go to the nations. Okay? Now, fast forward and overlooking, I'm skipping a number of things. You come to chapter 10, and you meet a guy by the name of Cornelius. He is a non-Jewish person. In the Bible, often in our translations, it's called Gentile. Almost always, I dare would say always, when you read the word Gentile in your Bible, uh, it is a translation of the, some form of the Greek word ethne or ethnos. That's just routine. Sometimes in our settings, you'd say the nations. Sometimes it's translated the nations, taking the gospel to the nations. But nations and Gentiles are kind of interchangeable terms grammatically in the New Testament. So you read the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the nations. It's all the ethnic groups. And so, so Cornelius was a Gentile. He belonged to the nations. Uh, and and he, he was not a Jewish person. Now, here's the thing. This is the rub, okay? We're familiar with ethnic and cultural and racial tension in our day, in our culture. And we see where it is and where it's bad. And we hope and wish things would not be like that. Well, let me tell you something. In New Testament times, the divide between Jew and Gentile was even greater than what most of us experience, whoever you are. It was even greater than that. So you find in chapter 10, the book of Acts, uh, Cornelius has this amazing experience with God and is told to get a hold of this Peter guy. They send for Peter. Peter's a Jewish guy, and he knows the cultural rules. You, if you read chapter 10 of Acts, you find him saying, Peter says to Cornelius, you know how I shouldn't even be in your house? Because people like me, now I'm adding to it, people like me don't hang out with people like you. And he, I mean, he comes right out and says that. It's, 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 you know how unlawful it is for me as a Jewish person to be in your house. But God is showing me that I shouldn't call anybody unclean. So this is a really big deal. The gospel is going from just the kind of the Jewish crowd, the Old Testament, God had intended the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations. It admittedly, didn't do that all that well much of the time. That was God's intent. You read it, it's all over the Bible, all over the Psalms, a light to the nations. Well, now in the book of Acts, God is going to do a whole new thing. He's going to bring 
Gentiles and Jews into this new organization, this new organism called the church. So chapter 10 has Cornelius actually come to Christ that is genuinely and truly born again by the Spirit of God. I hope you know what I mean by that. I'm using a term that you find in the Gospel of John where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says you must be born again. That is to be truly born again by the Spirit of God, the work of the Spirit of God within you. It doesn't mean you just checked a box and said, sure. It doesn't mean you just went to church. You can go to church the rest of your life and never be born again. See, the work of the Spirit of God within you, where you trust Christ as your Savior, your only Savior from sin, acknowledge before God that you're a sinner and you trust Christ in Him alone. Born again is the work of God in a person's heart. Okay? To, to just say, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go to that church, does not make a person born again. So, so Gentiles were being born again. They were coming to genuine faith in Christ. And it was mind-blowing to the Jewish crowd. Like, we've got this Jesus, Jesus, a good Jewish guy. He's our Messiah. Those people are coming too. Well, that's kind of weird. And so you're going to find this collision Now, in Acts 13 to 15, as I specifically mentioned here on your sermon notes, there's an identifiable unit in the story that we would call Paul's first missionary journey. So it begins, Acts 13, Saul and Barnabas. That's the Saul who's going to later in that chapter be called Paul. And they're heading out on a missionary trip. And they're preaching. And amazingly, on this missionary trip, more Gentiles, more non-Jewish people were coming to faith in Christ such that, and you got your Bible open, so Acts 14, do you see how it ends right before 15 begins? They come back, come back to Antioch from which they had gone out, uh, kind of like they're doing a church mission report, that's what they're doing, like what we're going to do tonight and you should come, uh, that's what they're doing here. Um, verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together. It doesn't say they served ice cream. We will. But that's what they did. They had a mission report. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done for them and specifically how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There it is. That's what they're telling everybody back home, all the Jewish folks. Hey, guess what? A whole bunch of the nations, the Gentiles, they're coming to faith in Christ. They're being born again, just like y'all. And oh boy, now, now you come to chapter 15, our main text. So, um, they've, they've explained this, and it says, or but, nice disjuncture, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Christians, they're teaching in the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Now, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others Uh, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They said, this is too big of a deal. We need to get outside counsel. But you can't both be right. You can't both be right. So they sent for help. So they were sent on their way by the church. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, brought great joy to all the brothers. So many people were excited about this. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, that's the ultra right-wing crowd, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
So they're throwing the glove down again. And this is a very big deal. And saying, in a sense, we can't both be right. So what does it mean to be saved? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? That's what they're asking. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And here's the way we see it. And you guys are saying it this way. So this is a big topic. Now, before we step into the part where we look at how they worked it through, and we're going to in just a moment, I'm, I'm wanting us to just treasure for a moment the work of God in forming the church. The church is not a problem to be fixed. The inclusion of the Gentiles is not a problem to be fixed. This is a work of God that should bring glory and praise to him. I'm wanting us to see uh, the glory of God in the church. This is under the heading, God is doing a new thing, meet the church. So I'm going to go to that text that I've identified here uh, on your study notes, Ephesians 2 and into chapter 3. I want to go there for just a couple of minutes, uh, kind of like a sidebar, but it puts context on Romans 15. So I come to Ephesians 2, one of admittedly my favorite texts in the, the letters of Paul, Uh, Ephesians 2 and 3, or really all of Ephesians, but this text in particular on this topic is just glorious. So um, Ephesians, of course, six chapters, the first three more propositional in nature. The second three we often speak of as more practical, but quite frankly, this section of the propositional part is intensely practical. So uh, sometimes we go with our divisions and we we cement them a little too much. But in Acts, or sorry, Ephesians 2 then, Uh, We're talking about this. This is the topic of Jew and Gentile in one body. So we read then chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to read certain parts and survey others. So Paul says then about this, Remember, therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, that's nice friendly terms, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, he says, that you were at that time, that is before you heard the gospel, you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, he says, here's the turning point. But now you've come to faith in Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He's made both groups one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. And of course, he's making reference here. Everybody reading this would have gotten it. He's making reference to the temple uh, where there were separate sections. Good Jewish men could come to this part. Uh, The women could go over here, the court of the women. And then there was out there, you know, in the far reaches, the nether regions. That was the place where the Gentiles were, which is, by the way, when Jesus was cleansing the temple, that's probably where all the commerce was going on, was the court of the the Gentiles. Um, So that's where the cows and the pigs, well, not the pigs, the cows and the pigeons, they didn't have (laughs) no bacon stores. (laughs) That's where all the animals were. Uh, It was probably out there in the court of the Gentiles. And he's saying all those walls are getting torn down now. Okay. So, so that all the nations can now come near. So this is, a, this is what he's describing is a truly amazing thing. So back then to Ephesians, come to chapter 3. He's going to use a term here about this amazing, amazing work of God. He's going to call it a mystery, uh, meaning something previously unrevealed. God hadn't said anything about this yet. So chapter 3, verse 2, or verse, verse, chapter 3, verse 3, the mystery. Chapter 3, verse 4, the mystery. 
And then again, verse six, and then he spells it out. This mystery, this thing unrevealed before is that the Gentiles, the nations can be fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the gospel in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And it's like Paul can hardly believe it. In verses seven and eight, he says, I get to preach this. This is so cool. I get to preach among the, gen- the nations, preach among the Gentiles. He says, that's in verse, verse eight, that's ethne, ethnos. I get to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. I get to run around and tell people this. I get to go tell the nations, the Gentile peoples, before you were like out there and you had to become part of the Jewish nation, you don't anymore. You can just come, come in faith to Christ and be born again by the Spirit of God. You can come to your creator through his Savior, Jesus. You can come. This was amazing news. And it's like, Paul, it's almost like he's shaken at this moment. I get to preach. The least of the saints, I get to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. Man, this is amazing. And he emotes strongly and to make all see. It's going to be known even in the heavenly realms. This is verse 10. This is an amazing text. Then he comes to verses 14 to 21. This is a doxological section that is a praise-oriented doxology. Praise, for this reason I bow my knees. Now, years ago, I learned this out of context. Okay, meaning as a kid... um, Going to summer camp back in the day, six kids in our family, uh, summer camp was expensive. I think it was like $30 at the time per kid for the week. And for us to go to summer camp in our family, you better earn some. So our Sunday school paid us 10 cents a verse to memorize verses in the old King James. And so I did. I, every year, I memorized stuff starting in January. I memorized my way to um, about half of my camp fee. Um, every year. It served me well. Even though it was old King James, I got it, okay? And I memorized Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. You know, for this cause, I bow my knees. Well, okay, nowadays, for this reason, I bow my knees. What was the cause? What was the reason? Paul says, I bow my knees. What's he talking about? It's the church. That's the cause. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives his name. And that God would open your eyes, that you would see the glory of what he's done. And he's talking about the church, this unity of Gentile and Jew, the nations coming, this fulfillment of the Great Commission. And then in verse 21, he sums it up. To him be glory, do you see this? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Amen. To him be glory in the church. What's he talking about? Well, in the context, the the glory of God in the church is the bringing of the nations, the combining of people who be previously separated, brought to be one body in the gospel. Instead of clean and unclean, and I don't hang out with people like you, oh, no, no, no more of that. All of us come to Christ, see, at the foot of the cross. So none of this, you guys and us. So this, this is a cause for glory. It's a cause for praise. And hence that big section there in Ephesians. So come back to Acts 15 if you would. So, so if you look at the section here as we head toward a look at how they deal with this conflict, I go to the section called with new things often comes conflict. You see this down here? Well, I, I want to just put this in a, in a, context of conflict for you. What are typical sources of conflict? There are probably more than this, but I'm going to just say a word about three of them. 
right out of the Bible, I would suggest, and I'll show you. So first of all, common course of, uh, source of conflict, personality differences and preferences. I would include here personal convictions, things that the Bible does not specifically address. You know about this because you, you, know, you, you interact with people. So people are different from one another. We see things different about uh, what color looks good on a wall. Uh, you paint a wall something. Some people go, oh, that's an amazing color of bright purple. And somebody else will go, who did that? Uh, that's atrocious, for goodness sakes. Whose idea was that? The way the furniture is arranged in your house. One person looks at it and says, that's perfect for people flow. Somebody else looks at it and says, are you crazy? That doesn't work at all. Um, all the way to trivial, you know, uh, what kind of ice cream you get. If it was up to me, there'd never be vanilla, vanilla, it's absence of flavor. Everything would begin with chocolate. Chocolate what? That'd be it. I mean, what's wrong with that? And if you disagree, clearly you are, I didn't say it, uh, but, but that's obvious to me. That's silly preferences. But if I was the one, that's what you'd get. Um, and you need to adjust. You, you, you need to adjust. Okay? Yeah. So, um, yeah. No, that was good. Yesterday, I was with uh, Jordan and Evangeline, did a baby dedication with them last hour. And, um, man, I sit down at their house, and they say, would you, would you like a little ice cream? Tillamook chocolate mudslide. I'm telling you what. Yeah. Yeah, this is okay. You, you guys just talk among yourselves for a while. Preferences. Okay. There's not right or wrong on those things. Color choices. There are others that get a little more personal when it comes to church life. Uh, this would include things like music selection. What kind of music should be played in church? How loud should it be? What instruments should be used and which ones shouldn't? How many people should be up front and how many people shouldn't be? Should somebody wave their arm or not? These are preferences. The Bible doesn't address any of those. It just talks about preferences. New stuff, old stuff. I'm not asking you to vote. I'm saying people have preferences. I'm not minimizing them. They're, they're significant. They matter to you. If you could have it your way, you'd go like this. That's okay. Uh, personal convictions. I'd put that in this category too. Now, personal convictions would be things, for example, that we all got to work through in the last few years. Do I dare remind you? Uh, yeah. People had deep convictions about how to respond to things. And you know, as a church, we, we had to work some of that through, but as a church, we did it you all did it really well. Part of it, we came out of all of that pretty healthy. Not everybody did. But part of it, we talked very directly about this. You're, you'll remember us saying, have your conviction. Have your conviction and follow it carefully and leave everybody else alone. There. Amen. And that was hard for a lot of people who kept thinking, yeah, but my conviction is right. Um, clearly, what's wrong with you? You did or didn't do whatever I did or didn't, what I, anyway, you didn't do what I thought you should do. Clearly, you missed the memo. What's wrong with you? Didn't you read this? Art? If I just give you this one article, you'd finally see the light. And I just, you know, remember we said, stop it. Just don't do that. And follow your convictions, really. And leave everybody else alone and praise the Lord. And, and that's how we're going to proceed as a church. That I, all of that produced source of conflict. Now, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 12 because uh, Paul talks about this. He uses the analogy of a physical body to describe how God made the church. 
And remember, he, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek, obviously, because he says things like, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Where would the smell be? Well, of course, you, you might say, well, I'm an eye. So I see things clearly, <laughs> unlike the rest of y'all. So I'm an eye. I can clearly see. Can't you see? We say, can't you see how obvious it is? Then there's the ear who says, uh-huh, don't you ever, don't you ever listen I listen really, really well. All you do, you're the mouth. All you do is talk. Slow it down and listen. Be an ear for a little while. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a hand. I'm a doer. You know, all that talk and all that, don't you, all that argue. I just do stuff. I'm a, I serve the Lord. See, those are hands. Well, those, in Paul's point, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, these can be in conflict with one another if you're not careful. But God, who designed the body, made hands and arms and eyes and ears to work together, to be aware the eye is going to see it different than the ear. The ear is going to say, yeah, but I heard something else there. And we need all of those different resources in a church. Rather than being in conflict, we need them all to work in harmony. So I have that, that's a source of conflict. Personality differences and preferences, personal convictions. Second, uh, theological, actually substantive theological differences. That's what we're dealing with in the text here today. What does it mean to be saved and what does a Christian look like? So this is a big deal. There are theological issues. I'll reference a little bit of that a little later uh, in terms of some more graphic examples of that. But there are theological differences that are substantive. And you got to, you know, what do you do with those? So we'll look at this in a moment. And then a third category that I'll offer, sin and selfishness. No, really. And James, of course, who's going to speak in this text in Acts 15, um, James, in the book of James, the book by his name, chapter 4, verse 1, asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he says, isn't it, isn't it that you want certain things your way and you don't get it? Isn't that a big part of it? I want, I want it my way. I, I know, I, that's not what the song says. I know, I did it, my, but I, it, it still works, and you picked it up immediately. I want it my way. It, the world would be a wonderful place if everyone did things my way. People discover this as they get married. You know, things that you didn't know were going to be an issue suddenly become an issue because it's obvious to you that if you put the paper towel on a holder, it goes this way. And then you get married and somebody put it on the other way. And it's like, stop the world. The paper towel's backwards. No, it isn't. It's the right way. You put the tube back on the toothpaste. What is this leave it there, gooey and nasty? What is this squeeze it in the middle thing? That's how dumb. You roll it up. Push the toothpaste up. Come on, people. Don't you know how to brush your teeth? Goodness sakes alive. No, not that dental floss. That's the nasty stuff. I'm not buying that. And on we go. Sin and selfishness. I want it my way. And I want you to conform to my way. Now, you can do that with personality differences. Sometimes it isn't the conflict itself is how we handle. I want to go to my next comment there as you turn the page. Not all conflict stems from sinful motives. I hope you know that by now. Not all conflict is from because somebody sinned. Now, you can sin with it in how you handle it, but not all conflict is, is because of sin. And I also would say we must not see all conflict and disagreement as evidence of the absence of the Spirit of God or the presence of the evil one. It, every time there's conflict, that doesn't mean that Satan showed up. It, it could be just two people showed up. <laughs> how about that? Somebody got married. <laughs> there you go. Don't blame it on the devil. It's just two different people. I mean, hello. 
Um, come on. Yeah, not all conflict means somebody's sinning. Though, though you could sin in how you handle it. Okay, now, I want to go straight to the text then. You got your Bibles open still. Because I want to just move through chapter 15. I want you to notice the progression that I have listed for you here uh, on your sermon notes. How did the Jerusalem Council proceed? I just want you to see what happened here. And I'm going to add a little bit to it. So in chapter 15, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas, it says, had no small dissension and debate. I read that as big church fight. Uh, but, but okay, no small dissension. That means big dissension and debate. And then um, back down in, let's see, here, here we go. Uh, in verse 7, it speaks of it again. There'd been much debate. So I put at the beginning discussion. Well, there was discussion at the beginning. And then you end up in debate where the two sides are explaining their viewpoint. Um, they're describing in detail, verse 3, the conversion of the Gentiles. Uh, now, in verse, in verse 7, Peter stands up, and he's going to appeal to God's evident work. God who knows the heart, verse 8. Here's what's happened. These folks are becoming genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. Can you imagine? Now, before I move to my number 4, I'm going to insert 3B. If I, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, uh, because I, I really should have called out verse 12, which I'll do now. Verse 12 is amazing. It could be your memory verse for the day. Uh, in this big discussion, it says, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened. Oh, stop for a minute. Isn't this amazing? This, this, is, this is gold. So they're disagreeing profoundly on something important. And the people involved... Listen to one another. Holy cow, what is going on here, Martha? Wow, people are silent while somebody else speaks and listening. Okay, listen and learn. Like they say on Shark Tank, listen and learn, grasshopper. Uh, This is is a a significant moment. The assembly fell silent as Peter is going to talk and Barnabas and Paul are going to talk. They fell silent and they listened. This is great. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they talked about that first missionary journey. And they listened again to God's evident work. Now, in verse 13, then James is now going to speak. James is a recognized leader of the church. Okay? This is not James of James and John. There are four James people mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, there's James and John, that guy, brother of John, the fisherman. He, he was killed, martyred back in chapter 12, so it's not him. This would appear to be James, the half-brother of Christ, who has a, a book by his name later called, remarkably, James. Um, but you remember, James did not start off believing that his brother was the Messiah. He started off disbelieving that this, this half-brother of his a son of Joseph, not a son of, uh, or son of Mary, not a son of Joseph, of course, um, that he was God in the flesh. James wasn't buying it. He's my brother. Get over it, dude, man. Do your own share of the dishes. So he had a hard time with that. And then you read in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 7 or 8, where Christ in his resurrection appearances says, then he appeared to James. One of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, the resurrected Christ, was to James. Can you imagine this? Brother to half-brother? Hey, James. Jim. 
Jimmy, it was all true. Jewish Messiah, God in the flesh, died on the cross, rose from the dead. And a brother, half-brother, believed. And here, a leader in the church at this time, so when he speaks, this is a moment. He's one of the, one of the key leaders. James speaks, and he says, brothers, listen to me. And he begins to tell a story, and he turns in verse 16 to the scriptures. He goes to their Bible, Old Testament scripture, to say, what's taking place here, God has already told us was going to happen. The inclusion of the Gentiles in the family of faith, not to exclude or replace Israel, but the Gentiles coming to faith. The prophets speak of this. So he turns to scripture as his authority. Do you see this? That's what he's doing. He turns to Scripture as his authority. He doesn't just say, well, it makes sense to me, Well, or I think. No, he turns to Scripture and says, did you read the Bible? And he goes to what should have been a familiar Old Testament text to prove his point. Now, he's going to bring a, a, a conclusion, a proposed solution. This is my number five in that list, starting in verse 19, where he says, therefore, my judgment is, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, and he gives them four things. Here's what they should do. Here's my proposed solution. To abstain from things polluted by idols, that would be reprehensible in a Jewish crowd, from sexual immorality, as the, the Bible is very clear on this from beginning to end, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, some of these things are not, for us currently, tension spots, are they? Like last time somebody brought fried chicken to a potluck, nobody said, was that bird strangled? Okay? That would be an odd discussion, because you probably didn't kill it anyway. I don't know. I got it at you know, Fred Meyer. I don't know how they killed it. But back in the day, that would have been a question, and was its blood properly drained out? Was it, you know, kosher? Was it, was it prepared that way? Now, sexual immorality, again, defined by the Bible very clearly from beginning to end, that's a thing. Some of the others are more culturally conditioned, like the Jewish people were really big. You don't strangle it, and you don't eat it with the blood. So what's, what's being called for here is to abide by scriptural boundaries of sexual morality, and on some other areas for the Jews and Gentiles to hang out. Hey, Gentile crowd, I'm going to ask you to take a couple steps closer so you guys can like hang out together. Don't bring blood pudding to the potluck. Right? Don't, don't do that. Um, if you have that in the privacy of your own home, Merry Christmas. But, but to get along together as a crowd, don't do that. That may be a freedom you, you figure you have. Set that aside for the moment. This would be similar, for example, in our day to believers having different consciences on the use of alcohol. There are Christians who, by conscience, are teetotalers, never touch a drop. And others who have a beer at a ball game or a glass of wine at dinner. Hopefully not getting drunk, because the Bible speaks about that, right? Don't be drunk with wine. The Bible says don't get drunk. But, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit of God, not by alcohol or anything else. But there are people who have different consciences. Well, if you know somebody who has a different conscience on that, um, must you invite them to a wine tasting if that isn't their conscience? Maybe not. 
You know, take them to Atlanta. Go to the Coke store. It's all soft drinks. And go there instead. But don't go on a wine tasting. Say, hey, you want to come if you know somebody's going to go. <gasps> Just don't do that. Kindness to one another. So if there's an area of freedom that you have and you want to go to a wine tasting, Merry Christmas, go. But, but you don't have to, you know, rub somebody else's nose in that. So in a sense, that's what's being called for here. There's some biblical absolutes, but then there's some others that were very culturally conditioned to that time. Um, you know, drain the blood out before you, is, it was this prepared kosher? Yes, it was. I knew you were coming for dinner, um, so I didn't strangle the chicken. <laughs> I, uh, I just got the ax and cut its head off, just for you. I, I don't know. But, but they're, they're, calling for, they're calling for kindness to one another. So they're saying, as I have here, two key questions. What's true to scripture? And have you done your homework on a debated topic? Can you tell the difference between good scholarship and bad? On every topic today, especially with the advent of the internet, I don't care what the topic is, you can find somebody who disagrees. Have you noticed? Um, I also would say, do you know how to tell the difference between a biblical scholar and someone who pretends to be one? Okay? Have you done your homework? I, I so appreciate a book I read recently where some, some, some folks were dealing with some issues and um, a bunch of young people, and they were talking about some lifestyle things. And, and as you read their story, um, young in faith just came to Christ, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what stuff were we supposed to be doing? What stuff were we not? And they sat down together, and they studied their Bibles. And it was, if you just stick with the Bible instead of what everybody says about it, certain things become really obvious. And they had a little meeting of the mind saying, it's, it's really clear what the Bible says. Before I go to everybody else telling me what it says, I just, I read the Bible and it said this, and it looks like we shouldn't do that. So we're not. We're just going to do what the Bible said. Not easy. Not easy. Well, that's good. What does the scripture say? What's true to scripture before you go do your internet search? Uh, and then, of course, the question, what's good for the progress of the gospel? It's more than a pragmatic thing. Humility on my part, learning to say, okay, I think I could do this, but maybe I won't for the sake of Christ. Okay, I want to go to the, uh, and spend a few minutes here on the responding to God's word part, because there's some pluses and minuses I want to give you. A couple sides of the same coin, if you will, just to, to help us think about what I mean by all this, embracing the conflict. Well, Christian unity does not mean sameness. There's a lot of areas, and I'm speaking here of the secondary issues that the Bible does not address, uh, where we don't have to be the same, okay? Where the Bible does not speak, we do not have to be the same. I don't have to convince everybody of all of my important viewpoints. I don't have to walk out there in the parking lot, look at people's bumper stickers and go, oh, no, 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 no. Uh-huh. I, I just don't have to do that. So it doesn't mean, but, but, but. It also does not mean that we, we use this cute phrase, we're just going to agree to disagree on significant issues, which implies that all views, this is the cultural, the cultural narrative today in, in the culture we live in that says all views are equally significant, equally value, and equally true. You are being fed that. Did you know this? Sure hope so, that all views... See, once you take the word of God out as a standard, an objective standard, it all becomes what everybody thinks. So everything becomes kind of a shot in the dark. That's what you said. Once you remove scripture, the clear voice of scripture, 
And I'm going to give you an example here when I say significant issues. And I'm not speaking out of turn. These are public issues that others have spoken of in other settings. One of the churches we're supporting right now came out of where they're at in large part today because of some disagreement. Specifically, Central Bible up north, EV Free Church that we're helping right now. Several years ago, they found themselves in a place where a group of people in the church became convinced that Jesus was not fully God. They embraced what's called an Arian position, the Jehovah's Witness view, that Christ was the first creation of God, but something less than fully God. Well, okay, we'll just agree to disagree, right? Well, no. No, no. This isn't about paint on the wall and what kind of chairs you buy. The person of Jesus is a core issue. So we can't just agree to disagree on this one. See, and somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And no, the church cannot just hang out together and have a, you know, the Jesus is, is God crowned him with many crowns and other people going, yeah, well, he's second, a notch lower. This isn't a coexist moment, no matter the bumper sticker you have. It isn't a coexist moment. So they had, like in Acts 15, no small dissension on this and ended up with the whole posse of people saying, we're out of here. That would be the, Jesus is less than God, folks, who left, leaving a pretty small remnant, who within a short time as their pastor retired, looked around and said, man, I don't even know if we can continue. Enter Sunset Bible Church to say, well, can we help you? And uh, we we have done it. You have done it. You're still doing it today. Um, That's part of why we're there, is that small remnant that said, no, Jesus is the Son of God. He's fully God, God in the flesh. There is salvation possible the word of God is true, what it speaks about. And so that's, again, what are you helping them for? Well, that's why, among other things, thank you for being true to scripture. So all views not equally valid. No, that's uh, been classified by classic Christianity through the years as heresy. Uh, That's not an orthodox position. Uh, So I'm saying, next little item, their true Christian unity is built on the foundation of God's authority as expressed in God's word, the Bible. Now, on a local level, that means individual churches or groups of churches must decide on how they will understand and apply God's word. That's one reason why there are many churches, and it's not always a bad thing. There are different churches. And so each local church gets to decide, and a bunch of these areas to say, here's how we understand it, here's how we're going to apply it, and we're going to stay right here, right here, in in what we understand to be an orthodox position, and we're not going to move. That's what the church has been teaching for 2,000 years, and we're staying. Um, and somebody else, I mean, my goodness sakes, other churches, we bless you, but no. Um, I've heard it said at times, there should just be one church in Tacoma. Like we could all meet in the Tacoma Dome. I think that's a terrible idea. Get together for a praise night if you must, that's fine. But, but no, there's a reason, see, because there are different theological convictions and different uh, other elements. Some people want to do a cowboy church. Wonderful, I bless it, but I don't want to do that particularly. Um, but I honor their privilege to do it. Um, now, my next little item here, I'll put some D words. Some things we discuss, and you hang out at the same church. Some things we debate, and you hang out at the same church. And some things you decide on and have personal convictions, and it may lead you to the other D, which is to divide, to say, I, you know, I love you and bless you, but that's going to be pretty tough to do ministry together on that. 
Um, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then I, I just don't think we can do evangelism together. Uh, what are we calling people to? So there's, there are those different Ds, and it isn't always a bad thing. It doesn't mean we're angry. Notice how this plays out, and I'm not going to go here. It's a whole nother sermon, but I just have to comment on the fact that this chapter ends with Paul and Barnabas disagreeing too. They've just done a missionary journey together. Now Paul and Barnabas disagree. They disagree on Mark, this young whippersnapper who bailed on the first mission trip. He went home to his mother. No, he did. He went home to his mom. It got too hard. Tough got going. Mark went home. And Barnabas says, let's give him another chance. And Paul says, no, I don't need a lightweight. See, we're going on another missionary trip, and I need somebody who's going to stay with the journey. I can't have him going home to his mother again. And Barnabas goes, yeah, but he'll grow. And Paul says, not with me, he won't. And eventually they disagree, and Barnabas takes Mark, and off he goes, and Paul takes Silas, and off he goes. There's more to that story. But even these two, who'd been through the Jerusalem council, they disagreed. It worked out for the good of the gospel. Well, all of this to say, as the gospel goes into the world, the church and the world, right? We, we hang on to the mission. And we're aware that in times, in pursuing the mission, there's a rub. Sometimes it's foolishness, silly stuff, personality stuff. We work through it. Sometimes it's other things. And we hang on to the gospel. We hang on to the gospel. We hang on to the gospel. Hang on to the word of God. Well, I want us to be aware of that as we step into another year. Next Sunday, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, away we go. Uh, some new things I'll be explaining to you about small groups uh, that our leaders just heard tomorrow, uh, yesterday and next Sunday. I'll fill you all in about how the 250 bunch of you all who are signed up for small groups are going to proceed. It's going to be good. I'd like to have you stand with me as we pray together. Well, Father, I thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for telling us what's real and what isn't. Thank you for telling us what you are like and what it looks like as the gospel goes into the world. And Father, would you help us? We're, we mess it up a lot. We really do. We all have a lot to learn. Keep us humble. Keep us listening. Keep us learning. Keep us aware that, that we do not necessarily know everything as much as we think. Help us, Father. Help us. Help us. I pray that this week would be an honor to you as we go into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.